We are fascinated by last words, particularly last words of well-known people. As a matter of fact, if you go to Google and type in last words, famous last words, it'll bring up all sorts of examples of well-known people and the last things they said before they died. Well, we are beginning a study this morning of the last words of Jesus before he breathes his last on the cross. The Gospels record that Jesus made seven statements from the cross. And they are powerful and poignant and life-changing. So we're going to take this time leading up to Easter Sunday to just focus upon the cross. And what better way is there to prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrected Lord than by just thinking deeply and carefully about His death for us. And so keeping that in mind, we're going to look in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, the New Testament, turn there with me. Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin reading in verse 32. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, living, infallible, inerrant, inspired word. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. The Bible says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That speaks of Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Now, very quickly, that phrase translated the skull in the original Greek language in which the gospel was written is the word kranios, where we get the word cranium from. In the Aramaic translation of that same word, we see the word Golgotha. So whenever you see the word Golgotha in the scriptures, it's an Aramaic translation of the word skull. And the Latin translation of that same word is the word Calvary. We sing songs about Calvary. We are singing about the place of the skull, the place where Jesus was crucified. And it says, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, first saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Lord, this time would be empty and in vain, if you did not show up to help us. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture and learn them in such a way that we would take them and apply them to our lives. God, I pray that because the Word of God was preached under the anointing of the Spirit of God today, that people's lives would be eternally changed. I pray that we would leave this place today different than when we arrived. And in all of this, Lord, in all of this, 
may Jesus be lifted up. May Jesus be exalted in our midst. Lord, we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. To establish the context of this passage that we just read together, I want to share with you the words of A.W. Pink, a preacher from the last century that wrote a book about the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. And this paragraph is powerful. It puts in perspective uh, the crucifixion. So I want to read it to you and just... FYI, every time I've read this passage, I, I just my, my eyes begin to fill it with tears. I can feel myself ready to just, to just weep as I read these words. Pink writes, Man had done his worst. The one by whom the world was made had come into it, but the world knew him not. The Lord of glory had tabernacled among men, but he was not wanted. The eyes which sin had blinded saw in him no beauty that he should be desired. At his birth, there was no room in the inn, which foreshadowed the treatment he was to receive at the hands of men. Shortly after his birth, Herod sought to slay him, and this intimated the hostility his person evoked and forecast the cross as the climax of man's enmity. Again and again, His enemies attempted his destruction, and now their vile desires are granted them. The Son of God had yielded himself up into their hands. A mock trial had been gone through, and though his judges found no fault in him, nevertheless, they had yielded to the insistent clamoring of those who hated him, as they cried again and again, crucify him. That's the context of this passage we read. We are seeing Jesus crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers, sanctioned by Pontius Pilate, at the demand of the Jewish religious leaders. And in the midst of this very troubling scene, we we hear Jesus utter something absolutely Extraordinary. He says, with his hands and his feet nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. R. Kent Hughes writes about this statement that it is a blazing flash of grace meant to grip our souls. So may God use our study of this first statement from the cross to grip our souls. There are five truths that I want you to see from this passage today that we're going to study and examine and seek to apply to our hearts and lives. First of all, in this passage we see the great need of humanity. The great need of of humanity. There are three sins that are pictured in this passage. The first is the sin of ignorance. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. 
Yes, the Roman soldiers understood that they were crucifying Jesus. They understood they were killing him. They did not understand the full import of the one they were executing. They did not understand, they did not comprehend that they were putting to death the one who had created the universe. The one who had spoken the stars into existence is the one they had nailed to the cross. And they had no comprehension that they were crucifying the Son of God, who was completely without sin. No way could they comprehend the weight of what they were doing. And Jesus says, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't understand what they are doing in this moment. It's the sin of ignorance. But here's what A.W. Pink writes about the sin of ignorance. He writes, sin is always sin in the sight of God, whether we are conscious of it or not. Sins of ignorance need atonement just as truly as do conscious sins. God is holy and will not lower His standard of righteousness to the level of our ignorance. Ignorance, he writes, is not innocence. We have no excuse for our ignorance. God has clearly and fully revealed His will. So even though these Roman soldiers were ignorant of the the, the full measure of what they were doing, they were still guilty. They were still crucifying the Lord of glory. And whether we sin in a way that is, that is ignorant or in a way that we have full knowledge of what we are doing, if we sin against God, guess what? We deserve punishment. That's why Jesus said, forgive them. They're, they're ignorant, but they still need forgiveness. So we see in this pa- passage the picture of ignorance. But we also see another sin in this passage... We see the sin of indifference. Did you notice what it said in verse 34? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, the Bible says, and they cast lots to divide his garments. So these Roman soldiers have nailed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the cross. And yet, they are in a very flippant way playing games at the foot of the cross. They are gambling for his clothing, indifferent to the one they are crucifying. And did you know that many people live their lives with great indifference to Jesus Christ? They're just not that concerned about him. They just don't give him the attention he deserves. They They don't desire to know him or know about him. They're just indifferent to the things concerning Christ. And the Roman soldiers picture that. They're playing games at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies there at Calvary. But there's another sin we see in this passage. We see the sin of insolence. Insolence, rude, disrespectful behavior. Look what it says in verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So as Jesus hung on the cross, we see that people in the crowd, the Roman soldiers, are mocking Jesus Christ. If you're truly who you say you are, come down off the cross. And they're shouting, 
vile things at Jesus. The sin of insolence. They are, in this passage, anti-Jesus. And if you look around at our culture today, you'll see insolence toward Jesus everywhere. Where people are not just indifferent to Christ, they are anti-Christ. They don't want to hear about him at all. They don't want you to talk about him. They don't want you to share him with others. They are anti-anything concerning Jesus. Just don't say that name, right? Just don't say that. You can talk about God all you want to, but don't say the name of Jesus. Insolence toward Christ. And so in this passage, we see three sins pictured or illustrated in the Roman soldiers, and in the crowd. But guess what? They were all guilty in need of a Savior. You know, if you break the law in our society, you're guilty, right? Now listen, you can be ignorant of the law. But guess what? You're still guilty. Ignorance is no excuse, right? You know that. If you've ever been pulled over for speeding and you didn't know the speed limit in that particular area... You, you can be indifferent to the law. You just don't care much about it. But if you break it, guess what? You are guilty. You can be insolent toward the law. Disrespectful, rude, and you can hate everything that deals with the legal system in this nation. But guess what? If you break the law, you are guilty. And in this passage, we see the great need of humanity. Guilty sinners in need of a Savior. And we can resonate with that, can't we? Because guess what? Every one of us in this room are guilty sinners in need of a Savior. But there's a second truth we see in this passage. Not only do we see the great need of humanity, we see the great love of God. The great love of God. It says there in verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Why was Jesus completely sinless hanging on a cross? Why was he in this position? Listen to me. He was in that position because he had to die For sinners to be saved. And he goes to the cross to purchase our forgiveness. And he prays for the forgiveness of the Roman soldiers as he's on that cross. What a remarkable picture of the love of God. Jesus was dying for and desiring forgiveness for undeserving sinners. Did the Roman soldiers deserve forgiveness? No. Did Pontius Pilate deserve forgiveness? No. Did the Jewish religious leaders deserve forgiveness? No. Did the mocking crowd deserve forgiveness? No. But Jesus hung on that cross anyway, and that's good news because guess what? None of us deserve forgiveness. And yet, because of his great love, he is hanging on that cross taking all of our sin upon himself and dying for our sins, taking the punishment that you and I deserve. You see, the cross is an act of God's amazing love. Whenever you read about the cross or sing about the cross or think about the cross or hear a sermon about the cross, you ought to 
immediately and automatically think about God's love for you. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates, God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. And there may be someone in this room today and you think, God couldn't love me. I mean, you just can't imagine my past. You can't imagine my weekend. God could never love me. And yet the cross declares, the, the, the cross shouts over your life, you are loved by God. The very fact that he's hanging there for our forgiveness, desiring forgiveness for the soldiers, is a beautiful picture of how much we are loved by Christ. Now, if I gave my life for my family, my wife or one of my four children, you know what you would say? You would say, that's noble. That's noble, Wade, that you would give your life for your wife and your children. That's a, that's a noble, courageous act. Good job, Wade. But if I gave my life for one of the vilest people in society, you would probably think, what a waste. Wade's got a wife and four kids and he's pastoring a church. And he gave his life for this, this, this person that is so wicked and so wretched. What a waste. And you know why you would think it was a waste that I would die for someone vile? You would think that because we have trouble comprehending unconditional love. We really don't have a category for truly unconditional love. If you die for your family, yeah, that's great. You die for someone that's vile and wicked. That's a waste. But you see, Jesus didn't die for us because we're lovely. He didn't die for us because we're worthy. He didn't die for us because we're deserving of it. We're wicked. We've rebelled against a holy God. We deserve hell. And yet Christ, in his unconditional love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, dear friend, don't leave this building today doubting God's love for you. He loves you. And the cross tells us that. We see in this story a great demonstration of the love of God. But there's a third truth I want you to see. I want you to see the great purpose of the cross. The great purpose of the cross. Look what it says there in verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, how could this prayer be answered? How could... God, the Father, forgive these Roman soldiers. Would God just say, okay, I'll let them off the hook. I'll sweep it under the rug. No big deal. They're forgiven. No. God couldn't do that. The Bible tells us that God is perfectly holy. And perfect holiness deserves or calls for justice. Because God is holy, listen, sin must be punished. So he couldn't just let them off the hook. 
Their sin had to be punished. And guess what? Their sin was being punished at that very moment he prayed this prayer because he was on the cross taking their punishment for them. In other words, the cross provided the basis for his prayer to be answered. Think about that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I'm dying right now to provide for their forgiveness. I'm, I'm taking their punishment right now so that you can grant them and extend to them forgiveness. I'm paying the penalty for their sin. And in that we see the great purpose of the cross. Jesus had to die as our substitute. Taking our sin and the punishment our sin deserves. Isaiah 53 says it like this. Written hundreds of years. 700 years before Christ actually died on the cross. In a prophetic passage, Isaiah 53 says this. That Jesus was... Bruised for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. That's the purpose of the cross. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. So this prayer about the Roman soldiers could be answered. They could be forgiven. He was taking their punishment. And that's what I want you to understand. With all that is within me this morning. Because our sins have been paid for, forgiveness is available. Because our sins have been paid for, forgiveness is available. You see, Jesus dying on the cross was the answer to his prayer. He prayed for their forgiveness. Forgiveness would be available to them because he died for their sins. And he died for our sins too, right? Let's just say that you had a good friend that needed $1,000 urgently and desperately. And you were praying, God, would you, would you provide for them the $1,000 that they need? And then you go to work... And your boss calls you in the office and says, you know what, we've been doing a great job. We're going to keep paying you your regular paycheck. But on top of that, we're going to give you $1,000 as just a way to say we appreciate you. Certainly you might think, hey, I've been praying for my my friend to get $1,000. I just got an unexpected $1,000. Maybe I'm the answer to my prayer. Maybe God wants to use me to answer the prayer I've been praying And that's what happened at the cross. Jesus was praying for their forgiveness while he was purchasing their forgiveness. Wow. That's the purpose of the cross. But then fourth, I want you to see the great answer to his prayer. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Was this prayer answered? Well, it was. First of all, a Roman centurion was changed at the cross. Look what it says in Luke 23, verse 47. Fast forward with me. It says that Jesus breathed his last, verse 46. And when the centurion, the leader of the soldiers who were, who were given the task of putting Jesus to death, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. He went from indifference to praising God. From from ignorance 
to praising God, from insolence to praising God. Does he praise God saying, certainly this man was innocent. He knew at that moment there was something about Jesus. And I believe the centurion became a follower of Christ. His life was transformed at the cross. And here is the good news. You ready? Anyone can experience the forgiveness of Christ if they will come to the foot of the cross. Anyone can experience the forgiveness of Christ if they will come to the foot of the cross. Because here's the deal. Jesus is praying for those that put him to death. And it's easy for us to say, yes, those Roman soldiers, they were guilty. Pontius Pilate, guilty. He ordered it. The the religious leaders pushed for his death. The, The crowd called for his death. Crucify him. Crucify him. They're guilty of killing Jesus. Guess what? So are we. He went to the cross for our sins. The song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You see, we're guilty of killing Jesus. And so in a very real sense, every time someone becomes a follower of Christ, this prayer is being answered. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and killing me and putting me to death. And Every time someone meets Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, this prayer is answered just like it was in the life of the Roman centurion. I believe that surely in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people were saved, some folks were saved that were 50 days earlier shouting, crucify him in the mob. An answer to the prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And can I just testify for a minute? I'm guilty of Jesus dying on the cross. My sin put him on that cross. When I was nine years old, I was hearing the gospel preached at my church. And I began to experience the the squeezing, the best way I can explain it, the squeezing of the Spirit of God in my life. Showing me my need for a Savior. And one summer afternoon, my pastor came out to my house. And we sat at my dining room table. And he walked me through these verses in the book of Romans. Showing me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Showing me that Jesus had died for my sins. The wages of sin is death, but the the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he took me to Romans 10 and showed me where the Bible says... We will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. We will be saved. He showed me where the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And at nine years of age, I bowed my head and I called on the name of Jesus. And that was an answer to this prayer. I was forgiven for putting him on the cross. And so we see the great answer to his prayer. But there's a a fifth reality I want you to see. We've talked about the great need of humanity. We've talked about the great love of God. We've talked about the great 
purpose of the cross. We've talked about the great answer to his prayer. But fifth and last, I want you just to think with me for a moment about the great example of Christ. The great example of Christ. You see, when Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus was practicing what he preached. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. I want you to see some teaching of Jesus to his disciples. Luke chapter 6 verse 27. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So Jesus said, when enemies encounter you, love them. Forgive them. Pray for them. And on the cross, Jesus was practicing what he preached. And many followers of Christ, through the centuries, have followed his enduring example of forgiveness for enemies. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and we took a break. We made about halfway through Acts chapter 6. We took a break to, to look at this series of sayings from the cross. We'll get back into it after Easter Sunday. And when we get back into Acts, we're going to study Stephen, a deacon in the early church. And we're going to study the sermon of Stephen, followed by the stoning of Stephen. The religious leaders didn't like what he had to say about Christ, so they stoned him. Now I want you to see how Stephen dies at the end of chapter 7 in Acts. Look what it says very quickly, Acts chapter 7. Verse 59, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now where did he learn to forgive people that were executing him? He learned it in the teaching And the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And many followers of Christ have followed suit. Extending forgiveness to enemies. Which is remarkable. Because true forgiveness of enemies is not natural. Do you know that? Over in Luke 6, when Jesus says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say... What credit is it to you if you love those who love you back? Even the sinners do that. I mean, if you love someone that loves you, that's no big deal, right? That's just natural. It's what we do. But when you love someone and forgive someone that hates you, that's supernatural. In your notes... 
True forgiveness of enemies is a supernatural act that demonstrates the love of Christ to a watching world. Forgiveness of your enemies, just like Jesus exemplified on the cross, is a powerful demonstration of the reality of Jesus in your life. And a watching world will take notice when you forgive like that. Let me read to you the words of Renee Napier. She writes, On May eleventh, two 2002, a 24-year-old drunk driver, Eric, killed one of my twins, Megan, and one of her friends, Lisa, both girls 20 years old. This was devastating for all three families involved and countless friends that mourned the loss of these precious girls. But this is also a story, Renee writes, of forgiveness and healing. My family and Lisa's family chose to forgive Eric. We even appealed to have his 22-year prison sentence reduced to 11 years. Since March 29, 2004, I've traveled all over the country telling the story to thousands of people, mostly teenagers. I always talk about forgiveness because we have learned how powerful it is for everyone. Eric told me, listen, he has eternal salvation because of Megan and Lisa. I show him via video in my presentations and will soon have him as an inmate standing with me a living, breathing example of the dangers of drunk driving, but also the power of forgiveness. How could Renee Napier find it within her to forgive a drunk driver that killed her daughter? Only through the supernatural power and glorious example of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's someone in your life that you're withholding forgiveness from. And this this first saying from the cross has moved you to say, How can I withhold forgiveness when Jesus prayed for his executioner's father? Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And so here's the point of all of all of this that I've said. Reduce it down to two sentences for you. If you look there in your notes. Jesus displayed amazing love at the cross when he asked for forgiveness for his executioners. That same love and that same forgiveness is available to all who will place their faith in Christ. Christ.